Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Ryan, my, my, my inbox since we announced uh, Thunder Bay Season 2 that we want to go investigate Niagara Falls, it's been filling up with people who want to help us, people who want to be sources, people who have been researching this themselves, uh, journalists who haven't been able to tell stories that they think we should tell. Have you had that experience? Yeah, I've been slammed with people that, you know, whose whose backyards kind of overlook where this development will be. I've been hit up by business folks that uh, have been chased out of Niagara Falls. And I guess I'm surprised, but I'm also not. I've already been asked for my private email. We had a sense that there was something, there was a story here. And um, here we are. I was pleasantly surprised, actually, uh, when I was uh, contacted by... A couple of really the cornerstones to the to the Haudenosaunee community down in Fort Erie, Niagara Falls area, and uh, was told uh, privately that when we come, we have an open invitation into uh, some of the lodges there. And he was just like, you know, there is so much we need to say from the Indigenous perspective, and this isn't going to be uh, necessarily be dead kids in the river. But this is going to be just like they've been completely ripped off. The, the, the land that, that they've lost due to development is just um, they, they have and they have no answers. And, you know, the leadership there wants to sit and chat with us and let us know where they're at uh, with their relationship to the territory that, you know, 
their their farming grounds, their hunting grounds, um, their ceremonial grounds. I mean, no matter where they go, they are surrounded by development. If you could imagine, you know, there's this rhetoric of indigenous people or, or people of the land, and you know, people they they are a land-based peoples that need to hunt and fish to and pick medicines to stay well. And it's like, well, you can't really hunt in downtown Niagara Falls. Um, that's not possible. So to have that invitation from one of the people there, I think, is really key. We're already making plans to have our first visit with the Canada Land team, and uh, we'll we'll probably announce when we do. I, I'd like to share some photos and, and just let people know what's happening. There was some pushback. Uh, a, a local reporter from the St. Catherine Standard was saying like, hey, like other reporters have been on this stuff. You didn't discover this. This isn't your scoop. And I said, look, respectfully, we never said that this was our story. What we want to do is like we know that how under-resourced you are. We know that not all of this is being told. We need your help. We're always respectful to local journalists. And we put them on the show and we build on their work. By the end of the day, Ryan he was helping us and and pointing us to other people who might help us. I'm getting that same feeling we got with Thunder Bay where like there is a there there. There was a local reporter who said to me, I can't say this publicly, Jesse, but you are barking up the right tree. We're going about this kind of backwards, right? We're we're announcing we're doing an investigation, which most people don't do when they do investigations. And um, and I think that allows us to build those relationships, right? Someone memed me standing on top of Niagara Falls and put a speech bubble next to my mouth said, uh, did someone say secrets? Niagara Falls has been given the heads up. We're going to be there soon and uh, they better start cleaning their shit up. Because, <laughs> yeah, we're doing a little, we are doing it backwards, that's for sure. When we announced season two, uh, we heard, I heard from a number of the journalists that, that we worked with in season one. And one journalist from APTN um, just said, you know, you guys really really built on the stories that that were already there you did it in a good way and and at our best you know what we're doing is we're supplementing each other we're 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 building on the work of each other and um it's encouraging to hear that that's that process is is well underway is already as it it relates to this uh this season of the show yeah i'm i'm i've got that impulse you know from the beginning of canada like as soon as there's any possible way to do something i just want to jump in like i just want to call these sources back and start working on it but like one thing that I learned with with season one and with, with Canada Land over the past six years is you got to do it right. Like we're still in the red for Thunder Bay season one. Uh, we now know how to do this so that everybody is fairly compensated and gets and, and doesn't have to work 80 hour weeks. And uh, we have a long way to go. We need we need a lot more help if we're going to do this and do this right. And, and we're, we're, we're only going to do it if we can do it right. I'm not really privy to like the, the inside uh, inside Canada land business affairs. And so <laughs> when I saw the number we had to reach uh, uh, to get there, I was like, oh, maybe my uh, 2020 will be wide open. I'm not sure <laughs> because it is a, it is a big number. And, uh, and we do need a lot of support. And I, and I will say, just to pull the curtain back a little bit, and I hope you don't mind, you almost died making <laughs> the, the first season of Thunder Bay. It had a, a, it had a big toll on, on you personally, uh, your time, and, and taking away from, from family time, as well as many others inside of Canada Land. And so I really appreciate that this time, because we know what we're getting into now, and we've done it once, that there is going to be more support and, and we'll spend more time, um, you know, being able to to tell the story and, and do all the reporting that needs to be done. So I think the goal that we've set is reasonable and I think we will get there. Um, but it, it, it is a lofty goal. It, it is no, sp- that is not a, a small uh, chunk of change that we need to raise. So it's good to know that we're going to try to 
to improve on on last time and and there are some improvements to make and yes with with more support i think we can we can definitely um support each other more and 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 perhaps even bring a couple of more voices to the team that you know has a has an extra set of eyes and that'll only make the show better if we can do that we're gonna get there it's gonna happen person by person and uh and if you're listening to this and this sounds like something you want us to do we need you we still need you We've come this far and done and done what we've done so far, so I know we can do it. Uh, go to patreon.com slash CanadaLand and, uh, and help us investigate this story and so many others. Ryan McMahon, I thought I saw you on the CBC. <laughs> on election night, there you were. Chalk that up to weird gigs comedians never thought they'd ever do. <laughs> what else? Other stuff. I don't know. Also host of Thunder Bay. Uh, it's, it's good to have you on Shortcuts. Yeah, thanks for having me. Ryan, the New York Times went to Nunavut three times, so I think they know what they're talking about, okay? It sounds like they bought some North Face uh, Long Johns and a toque and uh, made their way up. Congratulations to them. We will also talk today about the suddenly red-hot competitive market for podcast talent. Have I told you lately that I love you, Ryan? Yeah, I, I've I've heard that, and in, in, I um I can't I gotta go. I actually have a meeting with Radiotopia right now. This episode is brought to you by Brittany Orav Lakaski, Eric Catter, Surya Hukar. Laura O'Brien, Christopher, Arthur Antony, Emma Jarvis, and Jason Lalonde. Hi, my name is Jason Lalonde. I'm a content producer from Toronto, Ontario, and I listen to Caroline because it provides a unique perspective on Canadian media and politics, while remaining mostly unbiased and providing strong perspectives from both sides of the stories that they cover. Okay, Ryan, the first thing I want to talk with you about is this New York Times feature from Catherine Porter, who runs their Canada Bureau. And the headline of this feature is one of these big New York Times features with, with big, vivid photographs. And the headline, Drawn from Poverty, Art Was Supposed to Save Canada's Inuit. It Hasn't. Ryan, this article kind of slipped past me and I wasn't really like I was aware that it had been published and I looked at the photographs and I didn't hear any controversy or even response to it in, in until one of the people who Catherine Porter actually relied on and, and a person who opened up her doors to Catherine Porter uh, when she was reporting this piece spoke out against the article on Twitter. Yeah, Alethea Anagukbaril, um, who is a documentary filmmaker, she made the film Angry Inuk, um, and you know was one of the, the the very loud voices in the seal fee movement, um, standing up to people like uh, Ellen DeGeneres and uh, actually Green Party leader Elizabeth May, um, invited her into her home, and uh, you know as so often happens when outsiders visit. Indigenous Inuit Métis communities, they need a fixer or they need someone to, you know, officially welcome them. And my friend Alethea uh, was uh, that person. And from what I understand, you know, welcomed her in and sat and sort of gave her the 360 view of what to expect while in the North. She wrote, I'm gutted by how bad this article is and that I ever welcomed the author into my house. She arrived in the North having no idea what to even write about. And I gave her a bazillion ideas Instead, she chose to reinforce stereotypes. Which stereotypes, Ryan? Like, what did, what did you take from this article? 
Well, I mean, oh shit, I don't even, how long is this episode going to be? I mean, it was just, it felt like 1958, and it felt like, you know, some drunken old white men from the National Film Board were, were sitting around talking candidly at a, at a small wooden table in a pub uh, somewhere where they thought they'd never get caught. Like, this was bottom of the barrel poverty and trauma porn and absent in in the couple thousand words that are are in the article is a single mention of colonialism you know is a single mention of the devastation that has happened due to the the impact of the church and 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 the sexual abuse imposed by those that ran churches in these northern communities i mean there is no nuance or, or complexity to this article it's absolutely horrendous let me run through it here. Let's count the ways. Art was supposed to save Canada's Inuit. Right there, you got a couple of things. Like, your premise is that art was supposed to save Canada's Inuit? Like, is really? And no mention of really what they were supposed to be saved from, except for themselves, if you were to go by the, the story itself. Then the possessive tense, Canada's Inuit. And then the story, you know, you, you say it's, it's tragedy porn and trauma porn. This is the description of Cape Dorset. It's made up of scattered homes, many boarded up, an aging ice rink in a busy jail packed with binge drinkers. With no movie theater or downtown, a general store serves as the social hub. There is a brand new high school, but only because the old one was burned down by fume-sniffing teenagers. I think that you, these types of conflicts between people depicted in stories like this and the journalists often kind of come to loggerheads. And Catherine Porter, I don't believe, has has um, answered any of the critics. And the New York Times no longer has a public editor. People are coming to Canada land saying, who can I direct my criticism to? Who can I send this to at the Times? I don't, you know, Catherine Porter runs the Canada Bureau. So, like, you can't call her boss. I, like, I don't know. There's, there's, there is somebody, I suppose. I don't know who they are. Um, and, and, and the kind of ways in which we misunderstand each other, I think, is that the New York Times would say, and Catherine Porter would say, we're in the business of, of, of writing true sentences. There is a drinking problem in Cape Dorset. There is a fume-sniffing uh, problem in Cape Dorset. There is poverty in Cape Dorset. Tell me what's wrong about this article. And I think that there is just like two camps not understanding each other, saying it's 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 everything that's not in the piece. Like there's a few things that are wrong, uh, as I was indicating earlier, but I think it's just like, you could take the the best practices that people keep writing about how to report on this stuff, and the opposite of that is, is what I think you would find in this piece. This is fine. Write true sentences if you want, but then the truth means that, you know, you you should at least try to present some objective fact. You know, she, wa she wanted to talk about Canadian art, I suppose, or at least this is this is what it's premised on. She never talked about the fact that that really the, the Inuit art scene is 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 part of the backbone of Canadian art. Yeah, depending on which source you take it from, the Government of Canada or the Inuit Art Foundation, uh, Inuit art contributes between $64 million to $87 million uh, to the GDP. And it, he, in Winnipeg, they're building an, like Canada's Inuit Art Centre, and it's going to be a whole new, brand new wing of the Winnipeg Art Gallery, which, which houses actually... Uh, Canada's largest collection of Inuit art, so it's a it's a mainstay in 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 the Canadian art scene, and therefore artists like Ulysses Sela, who she's she is trying to tell the story of through this piece, she fails at miserably because she's never she doesn't talk about the way these artists actually uh, are are not able to make a living because there's such a disconnect 
between an art scene like the Toronto fine art scene and the communities. There, there's no support for these artists flying up um, materials to get them into studios, you know, is, is too costly often. And so these artists are left, uh, completely on their own. They're not, they're not supported by the arts industry, but they are exploited by the arts industry. It, it, there's, there's one, there's one moment in this piece where she's basically saying Ulysses can't save herself, um, because she's burdened by having too many kids. She's burdened by having her relatives around completely void of the context of, that's how Inuit live. They are very, very close in their family ties. There is no separation of my house and your house. Our houses are our houses. This is the way uh, they live. And and so not having the proper context around what she's calling true sentences make them untrue. And if you are not willing to go up there and really understand the lives of the people, then you shouldn't be writing sentences at all. In fact, in the piece... What you hear is that uh, when when people do make money off their art, it it, it actually just causes them more problems. The uh, the town's mayor is quoted saying, you know, sometimes when they get a bit of money, I think referring to to local artists, they use it to have access to drugs and alcohol. I'm sure that the mayor said that. I'm sure that that's true. It's it's just that we have so many choices as to which sentence to quote and what goes into that quote. Catherine Porter went to Cape Dorset three times. It is not easy to get to. Uh, Catherine Porter is a reporter who I'm sure wants to do justice to her subjects and tell their stories, and I'm sure that she cares about these people. I, I, I will give her that benefit of the doubt that there was no, like, intentionality of harm in, in doing this, and, and, and I think as a reporter who's like, I want to tell you what I see and not varnish it. I'm not trying to clean it up. I, 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 I think that there's just, like, such a disconnect with that New York Times voice of like, let me show, let me show this to the world. And I'm, I'm on very shaky ground because like the work that I did with you in Thunder Bay, you, we, we had to grapple with like, we don't want to hide the fact that there are huge social problems here. We don't want to hide the fact that we met people who were, uh, who, who were uh, drug addicts and like, this is part of the whole story. But if you don't situate that in the history, but that's less like, it's hard to tell in a New York Times feature, but I think that's the challenge that, like, if you're going to fuck with this stuff, if you're going to go, the power that they have to define these very vulnerable and small communities is such that, like, it, it, this whole discourse around how to do this differently, it, it feels whizzed by their heads. Well, I mean, let's so let's use a, a story from Thunder Bay very quickly, like uh, someone like Leanne. Um, and, you know, in chapter five, you meet this young woman who's come straight out of rehab and feels the, the relapse, you know, within hours. And, you know, what we chose to do, we chose to humanize Leanne. We could have ran the tape where she's talking about how good it is to use drugs. She talked about those things. Were we going to include those in the story? No, because what was far more interesting and, and far more real to, that, to, to her truth was that she had lost her mom and she's never been able to pick herself up since. That she struggles as a mother because, you know, of the loss of her mom and, and other, other trauma she faced in her life. We tried to not hide the fact that she is probably going to relapse. We mentioned that she went missing. So we, we, you know, we let everyone know, yeah, she's still struggling, but there's still, you know, there's still humanity behind that person. We, we tried to reflect that humanity, but what's missing in, in this piece though, in Porter's piece is that I don't, I don't feel any humanity here. 
there's a difference between standing outside the circle and pointing at the thing and finding yourself in the circle and, and reflecting on what you saw. This is the same thing that happened with Annie Pudaguk when she passed away. It was like, you know, one of the most renowned Inuit artists ever. And, you know, poor Annie died on the streets an alcoholic. And she, you know, this is her fault. And, and perhaps they should have saved her from herself and, and not supported her art. Because when she got her money, she'd, she'd drive to drink, end up on the streets in Ottawa. Norvell Morso, same thing. God, if we just would have kept the money out of his pocket and not give him a... Uh, a, a chunk of cash every time a, a painting sold like this is like why why what what are the stories behind these people and where's their humanity this one leaves a really bad taste in my mouth and by the way it's not that hard to get up there to Cape Dorset it is a couple of flights it is expensive but you're still flying on really nice planes she didn't fucking jump on a dog sled and paddle a fucking canoe across the the, the Arctic Ocean okay <laughs> She was on a plane in a fucking North Face jacket with, with expensive boots on, I can almost guarantee. I'm not willing to give her a pass and say, you know, well, you know, she probably wanted to. I don't give a fuck what she paid for her flight. She went up there, she took a shit, and she should be held accountable. And she's not. She's not answered back. Twitter was loud. Sorry I'm fired up and swearing, but Twitter was loud, and she hasn't tweeted a single thing since. Uh, in regards to this story, she hasn't responded to anybody as far as I know. Fuck that story. I think that's totally fair. Tim Fontaine of Walking Eagle, he tweeted, Watch for our stunning feature, Two Days Among the Whites of the New York Times, a true <laughs> yet thrilling narrative of our time with the white writers of the New York Times. I only want to say this, okay? If the vibe, the takeaway, the feeling, both on the part of Catherine Porter and the New York Times itself is, well, no good deed goes unpunished, I guess. We'll think twice before ever uh, paying any attention to this again. Then they have multiplied the injury. There's a book about newspaper people called The Imperfectionists. It's a great title because we are imperfectionists. We get it wrong. We try again. The, the, the takeaway should not be shut up and, and go back to ignoring this. Well, are we going to talk about the fact that Catherine Porter has traveled to many other remote locations around the world and has done the same thing over and over again? Like this is this is part of her beat. Like this this kind of trauma porn shit is part of her beat. Senegal, she has one the Toronto Star. She went to Senegal, right? And and she's been to Haiti to do the same kind of reporting. Like this is a weird kink for her and and I don't mind when people make mistakes. I don't, I don't mind when people learn, especially as it relates to learning about reporting in Indigenous communities and being an invited guest there. I don't mind. People have to learn, and we can be patient with that. But when you dig into some of this shit, man, it's just like, yeah, go there, stand outside the circle and point at the thing. And, and I just don't, um, I got no time for it. I don't give a fuck if I'm on the record of being an asshole uh, to her, I don't know her. Never met her. Don't want to meet her. There, to me, this was lazy, and uh, and that's really all I have to say about it. I just her her Twitter banner is her in skinny jeans doing yoga on a hilltop somewhere. You know, it's just like fuck this. I, I got I got no time for it. Oh, all right, Ryan. Let, let me ask you rather than say what they should do. Like you know, and I don't want to hold Catherine Porter. I mean, I think she should, she she can be held re responsible for what she writes. But you're talking about an entire mode of journalism that the New York Times applies to the world. It's not just Catherine Porter who does that sort of thing. Should they do it and, and do it better and listen to this stuff? Or is, is your advice like, fuck off, they've lost the right to tell these stories? 
I, this is up to the communities. It, I think I think Inuit people and people in these communities need to determine that for themselves. Um, I can't say that a New York Times reporter is not allowed to go to Cape Dorset anymore. That's up to the people in Cape Dorset. People like Alethea, who invited this person in and gave her the lay of the land. And, and I can't say Alethea gave her permission because I don't think Alethea feels that way. But Alethea was, was a welcoming body. Um, that'll be up to the people um, that, that, uh, that, that end up receiving these reporters and these journalists. But that's for the journalists to figure out beforehand. Imaginative actually went through uh, the tireless work and, 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 and commissioned a report called On-Screen Protocols and Pathways, a media production guide to working with First Nation, Métis, and Inuit communities, cultures, concepts, and stories. It was released May fifteenth, 2019, and it's an exhaustive guide. On if you want to make something in an indigenous community, here are the protocols and pathways in doing so. And it's all about relationship. And to me, it's a best practice model for anybody that wants to engage in this way. I don't know that there's anything really in the journalism space like it other than Duncan McHugh's Reporting in Indigenous Communities uh, book, which mm -hmm. we should link to in the show notes for any journalists that are pissed off at me for swearing at Catherine Porter. Dig through that and find the answers yourself. Ryan McMahon, uh, on this show called Canada Land Shortcuts, we have features, and one of those features is called Duly Noted. Do you have something for us today? I do have a Duly Noted. This is from this past weekend at the Imaginative Film and Media Arts Festival. They just celebrated uh, 20 years. I was very, very lucky to have written their award show and uh, hosted their award show, and during it, uh, in my little earpiece, I got breaking news that uh, the uh, artistic director of the festival, Jason Ryle, needed to make a special announcement halfway through the show. And um, this hasn't hit the press. It hasn't hit the news yet. So uh, I'm happy to duly note that Imaginative is now a qualifying festival for the Academy Awards. And what that means basically is in the short drama category at Imaginative, all of those films, should they meet the criteria of the Academy, qualify to be nominated. And so this is this is massive. It's it's the first of its kind for an indigenous festival. The short drama category is always a strong category at Imaginative. There is a huge glut of storytellers, uh, indigenous storytellers around the world using short drama. Uh, to not just enter into feature film, but but you know sit properly in the short drama category because that's their chosen medium, and uh, this is uh, fantastic news and it really raises the bar for Indigenous creators. So congratulations to Imaginative and to all the short filmmakers out there. This qualifying festival uh, status really ups the game for for so many of us. So congrats to Imaginative. That's fucking awesome. Uh, there are neighbors here uh, at our building on Richmond Street, uh, Muzzletov. And duly noted. Excellent. I want to duly note, Ryan, a tweet from uh, journalist Nick Taylor Vasey. And he, he was pointing out that uh, there was a journalist who filed a uh, FOI, Freedom of Information Request, trying to find out what happened from this panel of experts that was looking at how to implement the, the media bailout money, how to implement new federal money for journalists. There's this ministerial briefing note, and a journalist wants to know what was said. The response was entirely redacted. 27 pages of black lines. So I want to duly note that when your plan to save journalism requires complete secrecy from journalists, something might be wrong. <laughs> duly noted. <laughs> you warned them. 
I mean, as much as people don't like the fact that you were taking the stance uh, you did, uh, this might be a, a unique opportunity for you to say, told you so. Ryan, I would never do that. <laughs> no, not you. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day -day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. You know what? We're having a good time and I hate to bring the mood down, but um, something's happened that um, we need to tell people about. We have been keeping our listeners informed, Ryan, about the uh, the best of the best of the bridge, Peter Mansbridge's uh, election podcast, uh, production of Manscourt Media. <laughs> yeah. What are you? I'm... Why are you chuckling, you monster? <laughs> it's all over, man. Peter Mansbridge oh. has announced that uh, he will not be podcasting unless something interesting happens. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there will be no more bridge. Bridge is closed. And um, I just want to give him the send off that 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 he deserves and pay tribute since it's the end of the bridge. This is the end of the bridge abridged. Tiffany, one last time. Take us to the bridge. When you're down and out. I'm not actually down. When you're on the street. In the studio, sitting there for six, seven, eight hours. Falls, so you do get a little tired, especially of talking. That's enough of me babbling. I'll take your part. Oh, when comes. It 
it's not like we haven't had minority governments before. Peter Mansbridge. This has been The Bridge. We will definitely get something on the air if today's developments warrant it. So stay, stu- stay tuned. <laughs> you know he crashed well i'm sure it was planned but he crashed uh federal election night uh, at the cbc where i was and when he came i just couldn't help but uh, troll him and i've never met him uh, i called him over he shook uh, mayor nenshi's hand and he was walking away and i said peter uh come over here and so he did and i said uh, my mom would kill me if i didn't get a photo with you so he said, oh, that's very nice. And I said, and frankly, I'm a, I'm a podcast listener and fan. And I took the photo and I said, and, and the world needs to know, and I'm going to tweet this, will there be an episode of The Bridge tonight? And he said, <laughs> Ryan, I'm going home as soon as I'm done this to sit down and record it in my living room. And there was just such joy in my heart. And I thought, I can't wait to tell Tiffany about this. <laughs> we're, we're not good people. We're not nice. We're, you know, like For every 10 emails we get from people saying that they enjoy our mockery of Peter Mansbridge, there's somebody who says, you guys are just mean. And it, <laughs> it ends today, Ryan. We're going to be better men. We're going to be nicer to Peter. All right. Well, I'll light a candle and put it in the window. Ryan, you were the first to bring this to my attention. Connie Walker just left the CBC. Yeah. Imagine being the CBC and imagine watching someone who's been there for 20 years walk away and, and go to America for a new job. I just, I, I don't know how that would feel. I think it's a, I think it's a, I think it's a bad day for the CBC. I think it feels good for Connie. Uh, I, I, neither of us can speak for Connie, and, and I know that she's out of the country, and, and uh, you know perhaps I'll get a chance to chat with her about this on the show or something like that. But for context, uh, a lot of people know Connie as the, um, as the journalist behind the Missing and Murdered podcast series, Finding Cleo. We did pretty well with Thunder Bay, 1.5 million downloads. Uh, 15 million downloads for Finding Cleo. Um, huge, huge success. Wonderful piece of work. Winner of the Third Coast Award. This is major talent. And, and you know, uh, I, 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 I hate to uh, say anything nasty about the Nationals so soon after promising to be nice to Peter Mansbridge. No, podcasts at CBC now have a bigger audience than the National has by an order of magnitude. A bigger audience than it had under Peter Mansbridge and a bigger audience than its smaller audience now. Podcasts are going up, TV is going down. I wanted to speak about this, uh, even though we couldn't speak directly to Connie, uh, not about Connie, but about the trend that her departure, I think, can shine some light on and what it tells us about what's going down at the CBC. Like, it's a big deal what they paid Peter Mansbridge. It's a, it's a big deal the which hosts they put on the national. Somebody who 
gave the world Finding Cleo and had such a bigger audience leaves. And it's kind of like only people in the business are like, what's going on with that? And why wouldn't they fight tooth and nail to keep her around? And, and, and for that matter, Finding Cleo was like a while ago. Where was the next season of that show? What happened with that? And that was my question. I don't know. Uh, I do know the dynamics were that that show was not made by CBC Podcasts, the department. It was made by CBC News. And CBC News is not really in the podcast game, and nor are they really set up to, like, adequately resource that and um, recognize a hit as a hit. You know, you'd think that in a more competent media organization, they'd, they'd be talking about what's the TV treatment of this? What's the next season of this? How do we pour resources onto this because it's caught fire and it's it, people want to hear this all around the world? Instead, it's a totally new dynamic for the CBC to have a competitor for talent and for Gimlet to be saying, like, if, if you don't want to do this, we're happy to. We would love to make radio podcasts with Connie. So that's what I wanted to talk about. Yeah, I do note... Uh, people inside of the CBC, you know, moving around. We saw Ian Hanamansing, Anna Maria Tremonti, uh, Peter Mansbridge leaves and then starts his own podcast. How, how many more times are we allowed to bring up Mansbridge? Um, <laughs> but but this one is different. This one this one is different. And and I do want to you know obviously mention you know when you mention Connie's name, you do have to mention the missing and murdered podcast series, Who Killed Alberta Williams, and Finding Cleo. But we also have to mention that she is sort of one of the founding visionaries and founding voices inside of the CBC that now brings us CBC uh, Indigenous. Um, and when it started, it was CBC Aboriginal. And, you know, because she was in news, um, she was, I mean, she was integral, if not uh, the first uh, Indigenous voice inside the CBC to have the vision of having its own unit um, to to really broaden and deepen the story and, and to bring the complexity and the nuance from Indigenous communities by Indigenous reporters. And um, it can't be overstated. This is a massive loss for the CBC. And I, I, I don't want to I don't know. Connie would be very comfortable with me saying so, but she's she is a, a a shining light inside of the CBC as it relates to Indigenous storytelling and for all the work she did on the national to bring us into communities uh, before she was doing this podcast work. I mean, before she was doing this, she went into communities in in 2014, 15, 16 to report on on cases like the Amber Tuckaroo case and others, and so she she brought to light. Um, so many important stories uh, in Canada, and it, it will we will never be able to really understand uh, the loss inside of the CBC when she you know she moves out to New York to to work for Gimlet. I mean, there's yeah, there's a couple sides to this, and and uh, we talk. Uh, my focus is always on what's going on at the CBC podcast, what's going on at, at CBC News. Uh, I do hear things about CBC Indigenous, and that that's a troubled unit and uh, an under resourced one, and I think that there is, uh, you know other stuff going on within CBC podcasts. Basically, they're just not set up for this. When I worked there, you sign a contract where you just give the rights to everything that you may yet create to the CBC before you even create it. And you don't really mind because like back then, what are you going to do with this anyhow? I'm making radio documentaries and hosting public radio shows. Like no one's making a blockbuster about that. And now they're optioning out all the CBC podcast stuff for TV production. And I know 
that there's all kinds of conflict within CBC Podcast because, like, they've got people on staff who created those things who are being kind of cut out of the deal when it turns into a TV show. They're not getting money. Some of them aren't even getting credits. Then they've got outsiders coming in who are bringing in, like, news stories and turning them into podcasts who are in a better bargaining position. So sometimes some fr a freelancer who comes on contract is treated better than their own people. Um, it, I, I think it's just like creating all kinds of problems and I don't mean to single out, well, I'm happy to single out the CBC, but this is happening throughout podcasting and something that we're dealing with here is like now that this stuff has legs, um, creators rights and making sure that people get, uh, the proper credit and compensation, you know, like things that we never, like I, when you and I set out to make Thunder Bay, like the idea that it would be option for TV is not really like, it was kind of like somewhere in the back of a, of a fantasy. So now we're small enough, Ryan, that I could just be like, we have to figure out a way that everybody's happy because, like, <laughs> I can't imagine uh, Thunder Bay without your involvement. And I also know that, like, if you were ever to, like, have a bad experience with us, that would kind of be it for any other project. So we we, we can kind of navigate that because we're so micro. I think it's a real challenge for CBC. I think this is something you're seeing, you know, because of the success of podcasting. I mean, it's a blessing and a curse. Um, someone like Starly Kine and Mystery Show at, at Gimlet, you know, that show was was a massive, massive hit, but it took a lot of resource and it took a lot of time uh, to make. And I think I think at that time, Gimlet knew they had a hit on its hands, and they had so many offers for TV. So every episode of that show could have been made, turned into a film. I mean, the, these stories were so powerful, and and to my understanding, uh, at least what's been talked about at festivals and 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 online is Starly Kine was like, well, yeah, this contract doesn't do it. So we better figure this out because I'm the one out here uh, traveling around and talking to these people and finding these these stories. And and so I, I think that that as we kind of find our way to more solid footing inside of the podcasting industry, we might see better contracts emerge. But you have other companies like Panoply who sold their entire catalog in perpetuity, all rights therein, to a company like WME, where they can just they can just scrub every story, every character, every twist and turn for new content inside of the film and television world. So, I mean, we're, we're seeing this this industry kind of evolve and Canada we're not it's not going to miss us this is going to happen in in inside of sort of some of the cream of the crop in Canada and and it's a it's a complicated it's a complicated mess and I think the most you can hope for is that you find some success with your podcast but what happens inside of a bureaucracy like the CBC I think we're seeing some of that fallout play out right before our eyes and I I'm not inside the CBC. I don't know. I don't know specific stories. I know some podcasters that have had some trouble, uh, but uh, it's it's definitely a challenge. What kind of trouble? Well, I I I'll I'll burn a bridge. I, maybe this won't burn a bridge, but maybe it will. And if it does, well, we're kind of already getting fucked. So, um, I I have a podcast idea, and but I also want to shoot it for TV, and. Um, and we just, you know, couldn't get it in front of the right people to show that this is a package, that it would be a mistake not to shoot this for TV and only record it for podcasts. And basically through a, a series of meetings, we're just told, like, this is too complicated. We don't have the budgets to be able to connect all of the pieces to, to be able to do it. And so uh, in my company, you know, we were talking about, well, we need our lawyers to draw up contracts to ensure that 
we keep our digital rights and that what we're negotiating on our podcast rights. And the CBC, to their credit, CBC Podcasts, and I know they listen, so they're hearing me say this right now, and my hands are shaking and maybe I fucked up, but they they didn't say no. They just said that they didn't necessarily have the mechanism to make that happen internally. And so that's a that's an example, personal example of what is definitely going to be a hit once it gets made. It's an important show that belongs uh, with the CBC, um, and it, they're just not there yet. And I don't know, yeah. again, the internal workings of the CBC and why they can't get it together to have everyone in the same room, but we just... Um, that's that's one example of an issue we faced in trying to develop something that was multi-platform. I think that it, it's it's going to be hard for them. Like you know, this all kind of started with um, that first season of Uncover. You know, uh, the Nixium Nixium thing uh, about the cult, and then both the people, Josh Block and his and his co-producer of that, are like not with the CBC anymore. Like they, they, I think they they brought that to the CBC as CBC employees, and now you know, like other companies are just like poaching people, and there's all kinds of options. Um, I think it's ultimately going to be really good. Like it's going to drive up the the uh, the price of talent. It's going to you know creators are going to take control of their own, of their own stuff. I mean, it's not like you. It's not like TV or film where you absolutely need uh, to pitch it to someone to do it. Like the, the costs are relatively low. So you know, and it's 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 wonderful that like a company like Gimlet is like, oh yeah, there's huge audiences for the kind of stories that Connie wants to tell. So let's do that. Um, so, you know, the other thing is, like, you know, we'll see. Like, it's they, they call it a darling space. It's a frothy atmosphere right now uh, po- around the intellectual property of podcasts. And Hollywood is really like, what is this podcast thing? It makes a lot of sense for them because it's this stuff that's, like, the stories have already been figured out. And uh, we're sort of story machines here. We put out stories again and again and again. We, we build big audiences for them. So it's a natural to develop that. But it can take four or five years to make your first dime off of a development deal. We haven't made a penny off of TV development here at Canada Land. And sometimes the end of that four or five years is like, oh, yeah, all that effort and time goes to nothing. So, you know, whether they're going to move on and start like optioning the rights to greeting cards next or if podcasts actually become the next kind of like Marvel comics where we just generate the intellectual property that turns into screen entertainment. I mean, nobody really knows yet. Well, and that's that's one way you can do it. And if, by the way, for new podcasters that are listening to this and, you know, you think a little light bulb went off in your head and, and now that's what you're going to do. The space is full. <laughs> they're, they're, yeah, back off. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, there's just no newcomers. Fuck off. Everybody's trying to do the IP. <laughs> gravy train and and as you just indicated i mean there is no gravy uh and the train is broken like we, we you know we are in development of, based on our podcast but but i've lost money to to fly to meetings and you know try to find a way to convince people to 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 pull the trigger on it and you know that's 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 the game in making tv it's it's a hurry up and wait kind of situation but what's interesting to me is that i'm gonna guess that connie you, you know probably didn't want to develop Missing a Murder into TV, and I don't know even if it's the right property to do so. But, I mean, we definitely, the question you asked about, well, what happened to the third season or the possibility of it uh, continuing is like, that's a question that someone needs to answer. Um, and and I don't know the answer to it. And again, I do, I'm really uncomfortable talking about Connie without her here because um, 
this, this might cause friction in her life, but this is, a, I think, an answer that, that we need. Any listener is asking that question. That, that, that You're not betraying any confidence in saying, uh, where's the next, you know, there's, th- there's literally thousands of those stories to tell. It's, an, it's an incredible, it's exactly the kind of work the CBC should be doing. Audiences were absolutely engaged by it. It was important work. They, they should, anyhow, that, 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 everyone is asking that question. 15 million people are waiting for the next season. Well, and I, I mean, you know, Mansbridge has an RS, RSS feed that uh, is is dying for more content. Imagine the missing and murdered one. I mean, like this is just a huge asset that that may not see any more action on it. And I, you know, we we as podcasters kind of live and die with this RSS feed, and you know, you have to be very respectful of it. And it's kind of like it's your direct connection to those that support you. And yeah, I don't know, I don't know what the heck they're going to do with it. I do want to kind of pivot away and just kind of send some more props to Connie because, you know, she, she's done such important work. This past summer, she was at Columbia uh, uh, Journalism School at the Dart Center for Journalism and Trauma. And, it, you know, this is another reason why if I were the CBC, I'd be kicking myself in the ass. But, um, you know, she was one of the, she was named one of the 2019 Ockberg Fellows, which is a program that deepens journalists' reporting of violence, conflict, and tragedy. And it's a really, really groundbreaking program that I think would change journalism. And, and perhaps to throw back to the first part of the show, Catherine Porter might attend this, uh, this program. But uh, it changes the way people uh, report on, on uh, these stories and, and I think really assists the journalists in, in, in better understanding how to take care of themselves. And what will be interesting is to see Connie's next work, because I know just based on her tweets and some of the conversations I've had with other journalists that were following Connie's work and have talked with her about this, that um, this is going to be a huge asset and, uh, and uh, for her. So I'm excited to see what comes of this, this next chapter at Gimlet. I hope they take good care of her and support her and resource her. Um, and, you know, the next chapter is going to be very exciting for her. She's a she's an absolute star. Yeah, props to her. And props to you for that last Mansbridge reference, which was the most labored, strained way to work him in. I mean, I didn't think anyone could outdo me, but we, you got him in there one last time. Ryan, thank you. I got, I got four more of them, but I feel like we're out of time. <laughs> That's your Canada Land Shortcuts. Uh, email me about it. I'm at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything that you send. Ryan, where can people find you? I'm on Twitter at rmcomedy. Our Twitter account is uh, is at canadaland. This is the time that we need your help. We want to tell this next story. Please go to patreon.com slash canadaland. And if you live in Toronto, a reminder that uh, on Thursday, November 7th, we are doing a live show as part of the Hot Docs Podcast Festival, and we will be announcing at that show an entirely new true crime podcast. This is not the next season of Thunder Bay, Niagara Falls. This is an entirely different show that uh, Kasia Mihailovich will be announcing, and there will be performances from across the Canada Land Network. Come check it out. This episode is produced by Tiffany Lamb. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. Once again, we're at patreon.com slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. 
You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.